This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Kishana Kali, a writer for the Great North and author of The Survivalists, a novel that will be published on January 10th, 2023. Kishana, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am so pleased uh, to see you. We we mentioned briefly while we were setting up that we're both used to seeing each other, but only as little avatars on, on Twitter. So this is very fun to see each other sort of in motion. And I'm very, I, I've never read a bio with such a decisive line about a novel that will be published on January 10th, 2023. We guarantee it. Uh, I don't know why, but something about that framing strikes me as incredibly charming. <laughs> well, thank you. It's It's been a real fight to publish this one, so I'm proud. That's why you're getting the definitive language. Good. I am. I, I hope there will be more definitive language to come because there's nothing that benefits advice givers like um, just speaking with confidence, even if you're not sure. Uh, and I'm also excited to hear a little bit more about the book. How are you feeling? Do you feel ready to like fix people, tell them how to live? Every day. I mean, just me, you know, uh, fork and knife and some glue, just going at it. I'm ready to fix people all day long. Fantastic. Uh, I'm especially happy to hear that because I feel like our first letter uh, requires it's got a slightly larger cast of characters in need of fixing, even though the letter writer is obviously only able to write on their own behalf. And uh, with that, I will I will get us started. The subject is colleagues going nuts. One of the supervisors at my job is deeply disliked by other teams, but recently I feel that they've gone too far. I don't like her either. She blames other teams for the mistakes hers makes and tries to get subordinates to sign statements admitting to errors without letting them read it first. But I don't think she's an evil person. Recently she said that she's allergic to peanuts. And she put signs up over the office saying that no peanuts or peanut products are allowed due to her life-threatening allergy. Colleagues have decided that she's lying about this like she lies about work-related issues. To be fair, the one time that we saw her accidentally exposed to peanuts at work, she spent at least 30 minutes going around complaining with no signs of visual impairment or breathing trouble, and then she drove herself home. I've seen my cousin go into anaphylactic shock from contaminated restaurant food, and this looked pretty different. But none of us are doctors, and I don't think we should dismiss someone when they say they have an allergy. Besides, who cares? Why do they have to prove that she's lying? My coworkers were hatching a plan at lunch today about eating things like peanut butter chocolate around her without letting her know and seeing if she reacts before revealing that she's, in fact, around a peanut product. I'm really uncomfortable with this. I suggested that maybe she has a milder allergy that she said was deadly because she didn't think people would take it seriously otherwise, but they just dismissed this. I don't think her life is in danger, but again, I'm not a medical professional, and it just seems unnecessarily petty. Do you have any suggestions about what to say to my coworkers to get them to stop this, or do you think it's serious enough that I should warn her directly or go to HR? Never great, I think, when you say, my coworkers were hatching a plan at lunch. Like... <laughs> I, I don't know well, what it is. Well, that's an extreme plan. I was just thinking like basic instinct. We're going all out here at work. Yeah. Do you see like a possible outcome of this genius plan where things go well? Like, is there any version of, of life uh, where they come up with their genius plan to eat peanut butter chocolate and say, haha, there was peanut butter. And the result is like, she she backs off or things go better for them in the workplace in any any way? Like, oh, there were peanuts. Now I'd better stop making you sign things. <laughs> oh, I know. I, whether or not her allergy is real, I mean, just trying to harm or kill your coworkers is usually the best way to make friends. I, I think it's going to be just great for everyone if they go ahead with this plan. Yeah, or just like the idea that, I mean... I also hardly know where to begin. I, I think the line that I first felt like, oh, this seems really strange, is she tries to get subordinates to sign statements admitting to errors without letting them read it first. Because I, I've, I've worked in some offices, but I don't think I've ever worked anywhere where there was like a regular requirement that if someone made a mistake, they had to sign a statement saying, yes, the mistake was mine. Like, 
Is this at all familiar to you? No, and I was also kind of impressed by wouldn't let them read it first. I mean, is she just showing up with pieces of paper and then kind of yanking them away like a magician or or what? Because usually you can take the piece of paper and find a way to force yourself to read it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, I think part of the, the vibe I'm getting here is this is like a a badly run office all around. It's not just her necessarily. Like there's also just general like peanut-based conspiracy theorists who are hatching schemes at lunch. Uh, Either, you know, other supervisors don't make their subordinates sign statements admitting to errors, but they presumably, I don't know, uh, sign them themselves. Like, Like either she's made up her own little scheme where she has people sign statements saying, I'm the one who messed up the meeting. Or everyone has to do them and only she takes it seriously. But either one of those two explanations is like, that's bizarre. That's a bizarre workplace where people have to like sign affidavits saying, I got these two dates mixed up. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's amazing that anyone still works there, honestly. I just, I feel like I might look for other options. Yeah. And I can also see how like a workplace that's run along those lines in either direction, um, whether just like they let one person kind of go out of control and nobody really does anything about it, or everybody has these really weird requirements they're meant to um, conform to. It breeds further madness, I think, in the minds of of the coworkers. So like people who maybe in another workplace might behave maybe not like beautifully, but relatively sanely can like eventually descend into like Lord of the Flies style. Like let's get a peanut scheme going. Um, And so, yeah, maybe part of the vibe here is just like everyone has lost their minds. Well, it's been a long three years. I mean, you know, pandemic workplaces have just, you know, entertained us in a lot of ways that I think we haven't necessarily intended and aren't quite fun. I guess this is like one recommendation for like, maybe this is an office that should go remote um, because (laughs) too much like forced proximity during COVID has meant that everyone's trying to kill each other with with peanuts. Um, Do you think it's important whether or not she's like really allergic to peanuts, whether or not she will go into anaphylactic shock or just have a different kind of alert? Like, does that, would you have a different answer based on that possible set of facts? Absolutely not. I, I think that the the floor here is that, you know, she isn't allergic to nuts and you're just making fun of allergies or you're disrespecting, say, somebody else in the workplace who has allergies. You're just saying we're an intolerant workplace. And the ceiling is, you know, she's really allergic. She could go into anaphylactic shock. Her skin could swell up. She Her throat could close. I mean, you know, maybe maybe work isn't the best place to experiment with whether people are allergic to nuts or not. Right. And just like... I think to me, like it comes back to Pascal's wager, which is just like, okay, if she is lying and you do your peanut scheme, you gain relatively little. She doesn't sound like the kind of person who routinely when she's like caught out in the wrong, it's like, you know what, you're right. Like she'll find a way to punish you or avoid it. um, And you won't have won any of the things that you presumably want, like different behavior from her. Um, At best, you'll like have a slight moment of like pressure valve release and then things will go back to the way they were or worse. And the worst case scenario, of course, is, you know, she dies. If, If nothing other than like, it will be a big hassle for you all if she dies as a result of a collective peanut scheme, like maybe they're so far gone that they'd be like, we don't care. Um, who wants her to live, but like, it would be a lot of work for you and you could potentially get in trouble. And so for that reason, on the other hand, if you go along with the request, all that happens is you don't eat peanuts at work. That's still what? 16 hours a day where you can eat peanuts. That's a lot. That's a lot of peanut time. Mm -hmm. I think you could eat thousands of peanuts in your free time. People get so weird about allergies and often especially like peanut allergies where it's like all of a sudden somebody who you never saw eat a peanut is like, oh, there's a sign in the kitchen saying I'm not allowed to have peanuts at work anymore. Suddenly peanuts are like the biggest aspect of my personality. Like I'm the brittle man. I love peanut brittle. I'm the Jif dynasty. Like just that's all like now that I can't have it, it's all that matters. And it's just, it's, it's literally just peanuts. The expression is it's just peanuts or the peanut gallery is meant to denote something meaningless and unimportant. Also, people really love not believing in peanut allergies. Like it's a religion or something. I have a relative who's allergic to peanuts. And let me tell you, you know, she went through years of, I mean, really? I mean, couldn't you just eat a little bit of that? I mean, everybody's eating it, you know? I mean, are allergies that big of a deal? Yeah. 
I, yeah, I mean, and so I feel, I feel a little bad because I know the letter writers, like, I think they're all going too far. And so I don't want to make it sound like I think this letter writer needs to, to, to grow up. But yeah, the letter writer, you sound like you're an environment of a bunch of people who have been driven to the mountains of madness. And I'm really, really sorry. Uh, you know, do you think that like talking to the supervisor directly is the move? Do you think HR is the move? Do you think telling your colleagues to knock it off is the move? I think if they want to talk to their supervisor, it should probably not be about peanuts. What about those affidavits? I mean, that really feels like it it might have a lot of juice there. What about maybe not having to sign those anymore or noting that you feel uncomfortable about that? I just feel like they have options in terms of the supervisor. Get your colleagues to sign an affidavit saying, if you do the peanut prank, just like write down now, I'm not involved. (laughs) Please sign. But I think it's it might be time to talk to the coworkers. I just there's got to be a way to find everybody, get everybody to take like a deep breath and step away from the peanut attacks and maybe talk about just either what is really the problem at work or just another way to to handle how uncomfortable they all feel that they're there. Yeah, I mean it, to me it's like it, it seems pretty straightforward that your colleagues want her to be lying about peanuts because they don't like her. Um, mm-hmm. And so they are looking for reasons to justify why it might be a lie. And even you, letter writer, who think they've gone too far are also like privately a little skeptical. And just like, again, I would say like, this seems like a good opportunity in life to just cultivate like a healthy appreciation for the ineffability and the great mystery of life, which is like, I don't know the terms of her allergies to peanuts. Uh, she didn't die in front of me that one time still leaves a lot of room for allergic reactions. Like, I don't know, maybe she like had an EpiPen and like went and injected and then like told everybody off and went home. Maybe it didn't get to the, like, again, I don't know. Like there's, there's no smoking gun to me that's like, she's absolutely lying and you should just go for it. So I would just say not everyone immediately goes into anaphylactic shock. And that really, as as you say, really lean into the line about how we're not doctors rather than like, we're not doctors, but. There are so many ways that she could be suffering from that that are not visible to anyone. Like her throat could be closing up and then you can't see that. You're not up there looking at her neck, looking for change. She could, her lips could swell. She could just have breathing issues. It's so... So you shouldn't be guessing whether someone is actually having an allergy attack at work or not. You should be helping them. That, that way just lies madness. Like you're not qualified to, to make that call and nothing good can come of it for, for any of you. And, you know, for whatever it's worth, uh, you know, lots of people develop allergies as adults that then get worse uh, with each exposure. So, you know, she could have, and, and not everyone's like, you find out you're allergic to something, you don't then go like run out and like, rub it on your skin to find out how quickly you go into anaphylactic shock. So a lot of people just know, well, I'm allergic, but I'm not going to go test it. Like, I can't remember the last time I had it, and it's probably gotten worse since then, but I'm not going to go eat a peanut now to see how fast it takes me to stop breathing. So not everyone knows, like, oh, I can time it to the minute. Like, I have an allergy to shellfish that has gotten worse over the years, which is sad because I spent so much of my childhood enjoying shrimp. And I wish I had just been born with that allergy instead of knowing how good shrimp is. But, you know, I had a couple of times in my like late 20s where I was like, I wonder if I just ate some shrimp and then took a bunch of Benadryl. Like, can I, (laughs) can I stay ahead of it? And like, I pushed that one to the thin end of the wedge and I shouldn't have. Um, And it's been a long time since I did that now. And I have no idea at this point, like how much shrimp it would take for me to have like a pretty bad allergic reaction. But like it can feel pretty bad before I start to look pretty bad, if that makes sense. Also, I feel foolish for revealing this because now any of my enemies who might be listening could just like grind up some shrimp powder in my food and get me that way. So don't, (laughs) if you're listening, don't do that. Oh, as I also have food allergies, but you're going to have to pry them out of my cold dead hands. And yeah, rub see, them on my skin when I'm dead. You should have, I should have, I should have done that. But yeah, so, you know, uh, again, my guess is your colleagues are probably blowing off steam rather than like actually have come up with a concerted plan. But also like, I don't know, don't underestimate people's like weirdness around allergies and just, I, I'm not saying you have to like call HR at midnight tonight and be like, get up, like you need to know. But like, I think I, I would say like, say to your colleagues, like, don't joke about messing with other people's allergies and don't do it. And then I honestly would probably also, I hate to be like, go to HR, but like, again, just like, even if there's like that 1% chance that they do do it and she does get hurt, I think you would feel bad. 
And uh, so I think I would probably, I just wouldn't take that chance. I would probably also want to say something to HR. Um, Again, because it's just like this should be something the company itself should be handling, right? Allergy issues, food safety. It's not something that you should have to be running around putting out fires around. Well, and the worst case here is, you know, murder. I think HR likes to be aware of potential murder. Yeah, and you can just you can just be like, I couldn't tell you who exactly it was. I just overheard a general conversation if you feel, like, worried about getting someone specifically in trouble. And that way you can, well, frankly, you'll upset everyone because you'll, you'll, you'll have snitched just enough to be a snitch, but you'll have, like, protected people just enough that someone who would normally reward a stool pigeon won't reward you. So, like, be prepared for no one to thank you. But- it's still the right thing to do. And then also look for another job where people don't do any of this stuff. Yeah, but, you know, there's an upside to this. I mean, it sounds like the, this this writer and her coworkers have all the time in the world to hate their boss. I mean, you, it doesn't have to be Peanut Express. You could make collages, you know? You could sing a musical. There are so many other ways to do this other than trying to feed her nuts. Yeah, I just think when, you know, if, if any of your colleagues do listen to this, I hope that you just, like, Take a little stock of your life and how you're doing. Like, is this where you wanted to be? Planning to to poison a woman who's kind of annoying at work because she's like slightly a blame shifter uh, and thinking about surprise killing her with a legume. I, I think want better for yourself. Also, don't do that. Even if uh, annoying, frustrating people have an allergy, uh, don't try to fuck with them. I think that's it. I think that's it for me. Do you have any last thoughts about anyone that you do want to encourage people to poison or just know um, across the board? I, I, I mean, I hate dropping specific names, but I do feel like these days there's just a lot of bad people out here who might really appreciate a dose of airborne peanuts, you know, if that's not their thing. And I, you know, there's probably better circumstances outside of work to get that going. I appreciate that. I do. I do. So I'm going to have you read our second letter, which I feel like is something of an inkblot test uh, in terms of both expectations around uh, one's own writing projects and expectations around uh, shared identities as like a basis for solidarity. So I'm looking forward to that whenever you're ready. All right, here we go. The subject is fansick. My friend Liam and I both have chronic illnesses that qualify as disabilities, although our actual symptoms and experiences are different. Liam was diagnosed in adulthood. He has found a new vocabulary that helps him make sense of his past, and he considers his diagnoses an important part of his identity. His professional research also has a strong disability studies focus. I developed my chronic illness before starting school, and I consider it one of the least interesting things about me. I've fought hard to get other people on the same page. My condition is manageable, but it requires constant monitoring and expensive treatment. Recent insurance changes have made accessing the resources I need to stay alive much harder, and I've had to make major changes. Liam enjoys reading fanfic about people who are neurodivergent or otherwise disabled. I understand why this content might appeal to him, but its tropes make me uncomfortable, which I've shared with him. Liam recently shared that he is working on a romance novel about someone with my condition. I'm uncomfortable with this. I don't think Liam knows my illness well enough to represent it authentically. I hate the idea of him repackaging my painful personal experiences as entertainment for others, especially in a genre I dislike. How do we talk about this? I'm not looking to shame him, just to share my feelings. Did you get the sense that this is a friendship that is conducted primarily either like through text or online? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I could be wrong there, but like my sense was that maybe there's not many or possibly no opportunities for this letter writer to talk to Liam either in person or even over the phone. Um which I don't know if that changes my answer hugely. I just, I guess um, one of the things that kind of struck me was like, there was a lot of kind of hedging around how do I discuss this? I'm like preemptively worried about how Liam might receive the information, Um, but not a lot about like what the the letter writer likes about Liam or why they might want to stay close. Like certainly one option at least is like, if you don't really like like the way Liam talks about or thinks about the world or your shared identities and you don't really like the things that Liam likes, maybe you just want to kind of pull back from this friendship without having a big conversation about what kind of book Liam ought to write. Like that's certainly at least one option to me. It's like if you're not wild about Liam, you can just hang out with Liam less. 
I was kind of surprised to see that sort of emotional detachment to the friendship. It, it sort of read like, you know, this writer and Liam had become friends based on the shared experience of having a disability and they bonded over time with that. And so it seems weird to me that that disability wouldn't be something they would kind of talk about on a natural, regular basis all the time anyway. That would be a better, more organic way to kind of raise these concerns than just, you know, you're writing a book. Yeah, I I, I don't even quite know where to begin because part of me, you know, I, I do really want to engage with the premise of this letter, which is there's this issue coming up between the two of us that is giving me pause and I don't know how to discuss it with my friend. But certainly, like... Part of my first thoughts went to, you know, the odds that Liam's book is ever going to be published and anyone else is going to read it are quite low. Most of the time, if somebody is writing a book, you can stay relaxed because they will never get an agent and they will never get the agent to get the book published and it will never see the light of day. That's what happens to most books. Especially if it's just a book based on your personal experience and Liam hasn't done any research or like attempted to broaden the scope of what he's writing about, then it's just going to be a thinly veiled story about you and nobody's ever going to care or publish it. Yes. Right. And and that doesn't mean like, oh, you know, you should feel foolish for caring. Um, simply that it can sometimes feel like if a friend or someone I know is writing a book, that feels like this invitation for the world to come look at this world that I previously thought of as private and to pass judgment on it. And while I can absolutely understand that as an emotional reaction, it can sometimes it can sometimes help to like uh, look up like what qualifies a book to be a bestseller because it's kind of shocking. I mean, first of all, like the the there's not like one universal qualification, um, but it, the numbers are real low. Like a, a best-selling book doesn't sell anywhere near as many copies as like a fairly disappointing movie. You know, like people don't read books, I guess is where I want to start with this problem. So like not to say, obviously reading is important to you and Liam and reading is in fact part of what makes your relationship with Liam complicated. Um, so I understand that like it's a real value of yours and that it's meaningful here. But um Again, if part of this just feels like, oh, he's turning a mirror onto this part of the world that he doesn't understand the way that I would like him to, and uh, this is just about to like give way to these huge misunderstandings, it can just help to kind of scale down and say, like, the likeliest outcome here is that very few people will ever see what Liam is working on. Um, it will be a passion project of his and not necessarily, um, like, I don't know, it's not going to be like, Vanity Fair, you know, uh, it's not going to be like, oh, Becky Sharp, uh, uh, you know, a narrator for the ages, not a narrator, a protagonist for the ages. People will be talking about this for generations to come. This is really going to affect my world. It probably won't. So with all that being said. Also, he's not going to finish it. <laughs> I mean, like I've met so many thousands of writers and aspiring writers and just people with um, good to bad, the whole span, ideas for books. And the one thing that most of them have in common is they don't finish whatever the passion project is. It takes yeah. years to write a book. It takes tons of research to write a book as something as, you know, as weighty and as full of information as a disability. Liam is probably not going to spend the next five years of his life researching every single thing under the sun to actually finish a book. <laughs> And so, you know, with all that being said, because I don't want to just say, don't worry, nothing will ever come of this. I, I, I would love for the letter writer to spend a little more time thinking about, you know, that line, I'm uncomfortable with this. What's the part that makes you most uncomfortable? Is it the idea of it being published and lots of people reading it? Is it the idea of him potentially making money off of it someday? Because if it is one of those two things, I do have good news for you. They almost certainly won't happen. <laughs> Bad news for Liam, good news for you. Um, if it's just... This reminds me of how much I feel distant from Liam and he doesn't yet know that maybe. Or like, I don't know that I've ever actually like gone on the record with Liam. Maybe we've had a couple of conversations where I don't jump to agree with him, but I, neither have I kind of made it clear. I really disagree with you. So maybe the discomfort is Liam doesn't know me as well as he thinks he does. And I haven't really been able to figure out how to communicate these differences without making him feel like I'm scolding him. So I've avoided it. But probably the time that I need to have that conversation with him is coming because it's now beginning to affect my ability to hear like even anodyne updates about his life. Like I'm working on a romance novel. The other thing, in addition to everything you just said that jumped out at me about this letter was that the writer was uncomfortable with Liam writing in a genre that they disliked. I feel like that speaks to a deep connection to, to books, to literature, to writing. If 
for if the writer has any like desire whatsoever to write his her their own book, I really think that that might be a better answer even than talking to Liam, especially if you don't necessarily know what you want to talk to Liam about. If the writer wants to write a nonfiction thing, if the writer wants to, you know, groundbreak something about the condition, you know, put those efforts into your own work. Make yourself happy (laughs) by finishing a project that would be meaningful to you. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, like when it comes to the question of, I don't think Liam knows my illness well enough to represent it authentically. I, I'm of, of such two minds about that. Cause like one part of me reads that and thinks, okay, the letter writer is clearly going through a lot on top of uh, everything else that they've mentioned here in, in terms of like my insurance is now like screwing me over and it's a lot harder for me to manage my condition, which that's awful. That's really a lot. I, and I realize, letter writer, you say it is the least interesting thing about me and you want to not discuss it very much. You want to not necessarily like need to talk about it with other people in your life, but you find that at least right now for circumstances that are pretty outside of your control, it's taking up maybe more space than you would like it to. And I, I wonder if the flip side of that sentence is I need to be discussing like the the landscape of my painful personal experience right now with other people. And I need to do it authentically because I need them to know how bad it is. And so maybe there are other friends and other people in your life or your own like caregiving teams that you want to be talking about this with. And that might be your first port of call is, is look for the support that it seems like maybe you would rather not have to seek out because you like to think of yourself as being like pretty self-sufficient, which again, makes sense to me. Um, I can understand why that might feel like unpalatable, but it sounds like, it sounds like maybe you do need that or you do want that. Um, and, and now would be maybe a good time to do so. And then on the flip side, you know, I hate this idea of somebody else writing about something that I have experienced personally um, and that it might be entertainment for others, that it might be in a genre I dislike. And like there the answer is just really straightforwardly tough titties. Um, That's it. Also, straight up, um, one great way to get somebody to fin- make somebody finish a book is to make them angry about the fact that you confronted them because you don't think their book is going to be very good. People finish books because of revenge every day. You want to be careful. <laughs> yeah. I just like that, you know, again, like that's just not how fiction operates. Um, you might not feel comfortable because you feel like Liam is like using your conversations as extraction processes for his book or, you know, that that on an interpersonal level, that makes a lot of sense. If you just want to say, Hey, good for you that you're doing something you enjoy. I don't really want to hear updates about this project. It doesn't appeal to me. You have every right to say that. And if you're worried about saying that, I would encourage you to figure out how you can because it is actually healthy, appropriate, and fine to have a friend whose work you don't read Um, or to say, I don't want to hear updates on your novel. That's not hostile. That's not hateful. That's not antithetical to friendship. More people who have friends uh, who write should feel comfortable saying this. I have said this to people. People have said this to me and we have continued being, you know, good friends or friendly people, depending on how the relationship operated. Um, and that's as it should be. The one, another thing is though, um, Liam does have the right to write whatever he wants about whatever he wants to write. And if he does decide to go ahead with the project, you're probably just going to have to find a way to come to terms with that. I mean, (laughs) you can't stop him. And, you know, you probably aren't going to. Nobody will if he's sufficiently dedicated. And you you might just have to learn, in the off chance that he does get the book published, you're just going to have to come to terms with the fact that he did something. You don't approve of it. And, you know, move on in some way. Join the rest of the world and don't read it. Like, I don't want to say all of this, like, real lightheartedly, because there's clearly, like, big, deep stuff underlying a lot of it. But to me, it feels like the romance novel is maybe you're hoping for an externalization of a conversation that you've maybe avoided having with Liam for a while, or even a conversation with yourself that you've avoided having for a while, which is like, do I like Liam? Do I like being friends with Liam? Um, Or did I kind of used to be okay being friends with Liam and now I find him like either neutral or tiresome and I'm worried about how to scale back or end our friendship without making it seem like I hate him or think he's a monster and should die. 
And admittedly, that can be difficult, um, especially if that friend is somebody who maybe thinks of the two of you as having a lot in common and you don't. But like the issue there, I think, has so much less to do with the book and so much more to do with, on some level, I feel possibly contempt for Liam's relationship to his diagnosis, right? Like, I think that's a possible reading here of like, I developed my chronic illness before I started school and I think it's the least interesting thing about me. Whereas Liam, you know, he's a Johnny come lately. He just got his diagnosis and he won't shut up about it. And part of me wants him to shut up about it. And I especially want him to shut up about it in his book. And letter writer, I really, really, I have a lot of time and space and patience for, I want my friend to shut up about their own experiences feeling (laughs) like that does not make you a bad person either. Um, I think often we experience other people's freedoms as irritations. um, And that's one of the many reasons that like human relationships can be so fascinating and difficult. Mm -hmm. In in addition to everything you just said, I mean, um, I kind of want to go back to, I'm having a hard time dealing with... um, my diagnosis medically and through expensive treatment. I, I mean, this is a pretty bad time for folks with bad diagnoses. It does seem like insurances are being less forgiving and people are newly being diagnosed with, with more things. There's, there's also therapy. There's also support groups for people with your condition. So you can maybe find people you have a little bit more in common with diagnosis wise and experience wise. Maybe you'll find other people who, you know, don't think their diagnosis is a very important part of their identity who you might end up feeling closer to than Liam. This might be a good time to just find friends who have more in common with you in terms of how they want to treat their diagnosis and talk about it. Yeah. So then this does kind of take us back to the question I think I at least have been uh, circling around, which is what, if anything, do I say to Liam? And some of that letter writer will depend on if you do kind of do some of that soul searching and figure out either, I do actually care about Liam, it's just that this has been getting more and more difficult, um, or I kind of just want to pull back. Um, You can certainly do that. But I think to say to Liam something like, hey, when you told me about your book, I felt kind of uncomfortable. And uh, I just want you to know, I'm not nuts about, you know, the idea of hearing updates about a book that like includes someone with my condition. Um, So I just, you know, don't don't come to me for writing advice, please. That is a reasonable thing to say to a friend. And if Liam freaks out about that, I'm really sorry. I hope he doesn't. Um, and then beyond that, again, you could consider saying, I also want you to know things have gotten a lot more difficult for me lately. And um, I might not always be like available to have like a quick catch-up chat um, or, or talk about some of the stuff that we normally do. Um, again, you don't have to then like lean on Liam and say like, I want you to do X, Y, or Z for me, especially if you kind of want to mostly just like pull back a bit, but you might, you might want to say to Liam, I actually would love to talk a little bit more about me. Um, and that is something that you can say to a person. That is something that you can say to a friend. And that does not mean that you are committing to a lifetime of saying, this is the most interesting thing about me, or I am now going to understand like my relationship to disability the same way you do yours. It just means, you know. Give yourself a little room to say that. Um, And then, you know, beyond that, just, you know, tell your friend you're not nuts about romance novels and that you probably won't read it. Like, I just, I don't know. Every once in a while, I'll have a friend or like a new friend who will say apologetically, like, I didn't read your book. And I just, I feel so guilty. I'm just like, I'm so sorry that you felt for even a second that that was an expectation. I would never expect all of my friends to read and like all of my books. That is my job. And not part of the business of friendship. Like those are just really separate things. Oh my gosh. There's friendship and then going 300 pages of mine. Gotta read it or else. That, that's blackmail, you know? <laughs> Do you feel like, have you either been like friendly or an acquaintance with someone who did have the expectation that you as their friend needed to read their book like the second that it came out and then immediately supply them with praise? And if so, did that work out? Absolutely not. I I feel I know I'm friends with so many writers. I feel like usually the unspoken word is just, you know, if you're interested and you happen to read it and you happen to like it, it's cool to to mention that to a friend to support them. If you read it and you don't happen to like it, it's okay to never talk about it ever or let them know you picked it up or anything. If it's not a subject area you're interested in, it's cool to ignore the entire thing any entirely, but you know, support them as a friend for having accomplished something as large as publishing a book without having anything whatsoever to specifically do with it. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like so much of what might be holding the letter writer back was this fear of like, you know, if I say to Liam, hey, I know that I've said before I'm not wild about fan fiction as a genre, 
but like I really just don't ever want to talk about it. Um, like the fear there is maybe, oh no, if Liam experiences fan fiction as something that's like useful to his understanding of chronic illness, then I'm shaming him by saying, I don't feel that way and I don't want to hear about it. And it's just, it's just not like it's, I think sometimes it's difficult for people to say I do or don't like something without applying like a universal moral standard to it. And it's just fine for you to say like, he finds it kind of useful. I find it kind of dumb. Um, and I'm not being like, I don't need to like determine whether or not it actually makes his life better or easier. He just likes it and I don't. And that's it. And for you to just say, I'd rather not talk about fan fiction. Um, please stop mentioning it. Like, that's just a really, really okay thing for you to say. And um, if Liam's response is, well, but it helps me, then he's being at best a silly fucking goose. Like, it is it is not something where you have to hear about it if he feels helped by it. You are setting a reasonable request. So, you know, either look for opportunities to be more frank with Liam about what you do or don't want to talk about. Or if you realize you want to just like move him into the level of like light acquaintances you catch up with a couple of times a year, do that. You don't have to have a come to Jesus with every friend who says, I'm writing a book that you privately think sounds kind of dumb. Um, and don't, don't read his book. It just doesn't sound like you would like to. Don't read it. Don't feel like you have to. People have a great time not reading people's books every day. You could just be one of those people. Yeah, and you know, just beyond that, like most of what you've shared here, if you decided to share with Liam, that would not be shaming. It sounds like you're maybe worried that he would take it that way, that he takes maybe anything other than like enthusiastic unanimity as like overwhelming criticism. And, uh, you know, if that's the case, he shouldn't. And I'm sorry. Uh, but that's like, again, maybe an indicator that this friendship has reached its limits, right? Like if you get closer to someone, you realize like, oh, they hear anything like, oh, I'm not into that or I'd rather not hear about this as like, you know, as if I've like hauled them into the stocks and I'm like starting a witch hunt and I can't really help someone with that. So I'm going to, you know, focus my energy elsewhere. Yeah, but chances are, I mean, if, if you and Liam have a friendship where both of you prize each other, you, there's a way for you to have a, a conversation about this is tasteful and come out on the other side, still friends. Yeah, I just, you know, I also, I, I really feel for you, letter writer, like you're clearly going through a lot right now. And it sounds like when you are going through a lot and someone else like casually mentions they're working on a book that you think sounds like kind of dumb and also like maybe not a useful political project. It just feels like, and now on top of everything else, I got to deal with this, but you just don't, you don't have to deal with this. You never have to read a book just because a friend wrote it. Um, I'll defend that one forever. You can have a friend you adore and who writes a book that you just don't think is good at all. And, um, it might feel a little strange, but it's not a problem. You've done nothing wrong and neither necessarily have they. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think that's it. You know, uh, I don't. Uh, if I take this any further, I'm going to start making generalizations about like fan fiction as a project, <laughs> um, and I don't need that kind of heat in my life. Also, we'll be forced to rank romance novels. That's what comes next. <laughs> I mean, do you want to? <laughs> Absolutely, let's do it. <laughs> I think they're all equally good. <laughs> I know nothing about romance novels. I. I <laughs> I'd need a crash course. This was reminding me of, um, I was recently listening to a show about Grey Gardens, um, which is, you know, a, a, a movie that I enjoy immensely and like a sort of like, at this point, there's like the Grey Gardens expanded universe. So there's like, you know, spinoff musicals and HBO productions and everyone writes a book who's ever like been there. And it was the most remarkable thing because the like conversation that I was listening to was by two people who who have the most amazing relationship to Grey Gardens, which is that they refuse to say a bad word about anyone involved. So it was all like, oh, Big Edie was doing the best she could. <laughs> but, you know, Phelan Beale, he was also a man of his time. Well, and of course, the filmmakers were doing their best. And little Edie just wanted to be free. Like, <laughs> it, 
I, I had no idea that kind of like Thomas Kincaidian commitment to niceness could exist in the same world as Grey Gardens. And and truly like the the little poster for the show is like a Thomas Kincaid bright and cheery idealized depiction of Grey Gardens with little Photoshop pictures of Big and little Edie looking like a, a loving, uncomplicated mother and daughter, like, you know, standing in the garden like, oh, don't we have a cozy look? Like it was <laughs> remarkable. It was the most like complicated reading of Grey Gardens I've ever heard in my life. And it baffled me and it will probably baffle me until the day that I die. <laughs> Everyone was just doing their best. <laughs> People like that make the world go around somewhere. You know, they're why, you know, we're not all poisoning our coworkers with nuts. They're just taking they a brain spin on things and keeping things going. But they would also understand you if you did poison someone with peanuts is the remarkable thing, such as their commitment uh, to recuperation. They're, they're basically uh, like the, the, um, the main character whose name I have forgotten from the tenant of Wildville Hall, who has that great monologue, you know, towards the end about how everyone can be redeemed into God's universalist plan, which is beautiful. So we'll get off of uh, tenant of Wildville Hall and maybe get into, this feels like a good moment to talk about your book. Uh, what friends do you think you've upset by writing it? <laughs> oh my God. Number one, you know, None of my friends, um, actually, who I've ever talked to about this project have been less than enthusiastic about it. Now, I can't assume they'll read it. I don't even necessarily want them to read it. I actually think people who want their friends to read things are kind of daring, more daring than me. But um, who would probably be pissed about it is actually my family. <laughs> they. Do you think they're going to read it? I hope not. I don't think some of my family reads. Um, I'm hoping the folks who do don't read this. It's a novel. People don't necessarily like to excavate novels from the dark caves in which they are published as opposed to like serious nonfiction about being happier or whatever. Um, but Pop psychology. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> who moved my ENTP? But the other thing is it's fiction. There's not a single like 100% true thing in there that could be attributed to a specific person. And so good luck to them finding the things that are actually about them that I have cleverly camouflaged. That, that feels like a pretty healthy approach. So when it comes to then readers who are not uh, anyone who shares like a personal bond with you, um, not to like continue to keep it anchored in our last question, but I am curious now, like are some of your hopes that a reader might come away from your book thinking, I feel like either I saw a, a life represented authentically or some kind of condition that carried with it like realism or like the tropes of realism or are you hoping more like I'd like to move someone to some new depth of emotion um, or is it something else entirely or or does it just feel like I have no attachment to what a reader might take away from this book all I want is for them to pay for it so that I make money and then beyond that it's up to them I um in general I'm not in the school of of even hinting as to what I want anyone to get from any of my writing. If people read it and they form an emotional attachment to the characters or the plot they're in, I'm happy. Um, I'm happy to have done that for them. If they want to learn more about Central Brooklyn, if they're curious about the community garden structure, if they say, want to Google, you know, are there survivalists in Brooklyn and find some of the things I base the book on, like all sorts of people stockpiling guns above trendy coffee shops and things like that, then we can have that experience together too. And that would be fun. But oh no, not my job. My job is to write it and put it out there and hope it does well enough that people form a good emotional attachment to it like I have with the books I've liked in the past. Yeah. So for, for people listening who are maybe cobbling together a sense of the plot, like as we go, I feel like this is actually probably a moment where I should have done earlier in the show, which is if you wouldn't mind giving like a brief uh, description for our listeners who are like, okay, something about survivalists, something about prepping in Brooklyn, um, just like a quick one to two sentences. Uh, my main character is a lawyer who is, um, well, she, she doesn't know if she wants to make partner or not, but it does feel like it's getting harder. And she's also single. And one of her goals has always been to find a partner, maybe get married, maybe have that house, that kids, et cetera. So instead of, you know, finding a nice, normal guy to hang out with in central Brooklyn, she ends up dating the head of a survivalist coffee company and living with him. They, they roast coffee and they stockpile guns and it is way more than she bargained and is ready for. And the book follows her journey through becoming a person that she probably didn't want to become. That is, I, I think, 
such an excellent framework for really every question that we have had today. I, I kind of wish that we had started the the conversation with that, but um, we're here now, and that's what's important. So I know uh, having having read elsewhere, you've talked about how like uh, Laval's Changeling uh, has been an influence on this book, or or um, like Paul Beatty's The Sellout. And I'm wondering, are there also any particular community gardens in Brooklyn that you want to uh, name as being influential uh, on the the like scope of the novel? Or again, is that like no one's ever going to know that about me? Just like they'll never know about your allergies. I can't remember their names, which sucks. I have them all written down, but there's a lot of really nice ones in Bed-Stuy. There's a lot of central Bed-Stuy that is a bunch of really lovely tree-lined brownstone neighborhoods that people have had to maintain themselves because the city did not care about them in the 1970s, which is when the community gardens got started. So just central Bed-Stuy, if you happen to see a green space where it feels like there should be a coffee shop charging coffee, like charging $12 a cup, that's probably something that somebody's fought for for 50 or 60 years to maintain, to grow food for their community, to help folks out who, who live there and to, you know, just be out there in the gardens doing something with your hands, you know, having a good time. So no specific gardens, but central Brooklyn gardening generally in the community garden space. And that kind of like continuing tension of, uh, you know, what does it mean for this to be a community space where we are trying to take care of one another and who is my we and who is this other person's we? And at what point do those like, I'm so sorry, our we's come into conflict. I'm going to find a better way to say that eventually. That just... I loved that. I thought that was great. I love thinking of we's joining up <laughs> and fighting each other. Yeah. Or just like, yeah, like what is one, like why does one project of mutual aid and then another project of prepping, like, seemingly centered around the same idea, which is a community garden within a larger community. Um, how can they have such different ideas of the world, the future, what it means to be prepared, who one ought to prepare for, um, and and what that preparation can or should look like is is really, uh, it's rich fodder. I, the preppers are looking for their sense of community within prepping. The folks in my book are pretty familyless and friendless and have decided to create their own family through prepping. I know that sounds insane, but I think there's actually a lot of that out there. I think there's a natural drive for community among every sub-demo you can think of, even if it's weird or violent and people are lonely. Loneliness is a big epidemic in American life. And so these people have decided that they will form community by stockpiling guns and very patiently waiting for the apocalypse on the one side. And the other side is the community garden space. They're going to form community by growing fruits and vegetables, by getting to know their neighbors, by distributing food to the needy, by helping folks out. It's these two violently opposed sections of community, I guess, that go to war in the book. I I, I have to say, I would read that book. I'm excited to read that book. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> and that sounds, yeah, that sounds really, especially because like, again, too, so much of it comes down to this like problem that everyone who has ever lived has to face, which is you have to keep planning for meals all the time. You're never done. As You can do all the meal prep in the world that you want. You can do all the prepping prep in the world that you want. But there's always going to be another day where the question of, well, what are we all going to eat comes up again. And there are so many different ways people can freak out about that question um, that it's sort of endlessly generative, at least in terms of fiction, if not endlessly generative in terms of generating food, because sometimes that's a problem. Oh, and early in the pandemic, when we were running out of toilet paper and the grocery stores are going bare, I was doing runs to Target, trying to grocery shop. And every time I went an entire aisle would be empty, a new aisle. It was terrifying. I'm not like this. I don't consider myself to be a survivalist, but at the same time, the food was disappearing in March 2020 and it was freaking me out. And now food prices are up so bad that it sort of feels like, and they're also, the grocery shop I shop at, the grocery store I shop at is putting limitations on how much you can buy. And so it kind of feels like we're edging into this again. There are food shortages. Things are more expensive. I Again, I don't really want to feel like this, but it's out there. And I think people are feeling threatened by the availability of food or the lack thereof. But also we have a lot of hunger in this country. And so running out of food has always been a threat to millions of people anyway. I think I think people kind of get that when you start talking about it. Right. And, you know, it's like when you think about like various origins of human societies, like, you know, people have always gotten together over the question of where's the next meal going to come from or where our next supply is going to come from. It's kind of remarkable to think that there is still sometimes on different scales this idea of no, 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 there's a fantasy of there's a big enough stockpile that I can come up with that means I will never, ever have to answer that question in a, in a way that I find like frightening. Like I will always know where the next meal is going to come from. 
Uh, thank you so much for um, being correct about everything. Uh, congratulations on your upcoming book uh, and have a fabulous rest of your day. Thanks for having me on. Um, thanks for talking to me about these these issues. Um, I really feel like we decided some people's lives today and that's always something I try to do every day. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. So you won't have to like go direct traffic later just to feel a sense of control. Oh, never. Uh, just going to do more of this. Cool. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. It sounds to me like maybe what you are searching for are some general like house rules about how your girlfriend and you can live in a place together when one of you is sober and the other has like a moderate uh, relationship to drugs. So that's the thing to ask here. Not the fact that she has said, boy, if there were any of whatever drug around and I was feeling really upset, I'd probably want to use it. Like that's a fairly like reasonable statement to make. I I get it. You know, you already knew she was an addict, so like that makes sense. I I don't really understand why you feel retroactively guilty on her saying something fairly straightforward as if you had been hiding something from her and that's what I think raised my own alarm bells about like possible codependency because that's like that's a lot of guilt or self-doubt to take on from a pretty standard sounding statement. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.